So we're starting a new series, and I'm indebted to Dr. Tim Mackey. Uh, if you're not familiar, he is one of the founders of the Bible Project. Uh, it was his title that I borrowed for this series, so uh, I'm not as creative as Dr. Tim Mackey is and his team, uh, but I love this idea of bad words of the Bible because it kind of piques your interest and your curiosity, doesn't it? I, w- I wonder what bad words are found in the Bible. And uh, there are actually a few in the original Greek that I won't parse out for you today, but they are there. Um, But we're not talking about those culturally loaded profane words. We're talking about um, the bad words of the Bible when it comes to sometimes the way those words make us feel. And so I do appreciate Dr. Tim Mackey and the work he's done uh, on the Hebrew and the Greek because that's the Older Testament original language, the New Testament original language, Koine Greek. And so sometimes these, le- these words are very fluid and there's lots of um, meaning that when we parse them out, it's like, ah, the light goes on for us. So I really do appreciate the work he's done both in the, uh, the Hebrew and in the Greek that will help us throughout this series. So um, the words that we're going to talk about over the next three weeks are iniquity, transgression, and sin. And uh, I'm expecting attendance will still remain high over the next three weeks at King Street. Uh, but these are the bad words of the Bible. And uh, I really do believe that every generation needs to step back and take a fresh look at the gospel, of course, and, uh, and also to make sure, because language is a really funny thing. Uh, words tend to evolve, or at least the meaning of words tend to evolve. Uh, what my grandparents understood a word to mean means something very different today. And uh, can I share a few of these with you? Let me just, let me just find them where I, I wrote these down. Um, my grandparents understood that if somebody was sick, they were not well. Uh, sick means, like, cool, I think. Um, so, or, or I understood wicked, right? You know what wicked is? Like, if you're wicked, it's like evil and dark. But if you're a skateboarder and you're wicked, it's like, wow, you did an amazing jump off of that ramp. Um, a mouse used to be a small little rodent, right, that you'd want to keep out of your house. Now a mouse is how you send commands to your computer operating system. Or what about the cloud, right? The cloud was like, wow, look at that cloud. It's like, I'm working, I'm doing my work in the cloud. It's like, well, really? <laughs> it's... Or what about a stream? Didn't it just used to be like a, you know... A body of water that would flow, and now it's like we're streaming this gathering uh, to all sorts of places. Um, uh, my daughters told me a number of years ago, and I, I'm glad they did. I used to say to people, "We should hook up sometime," and uh, <laughs> I was told that that was not appropriate, especially coming from a pastor in the lobby to invite people to be hooking up. We're not living in Corinth, right? We're living in anyway. So sin, right? That's where we're going to spend our energy today. But before we get there, all three of these words, iniquity, transgression, and sin, are found in one passage in Psalm 32, one of my favorite psalms, the first five verses, which will be our passage to ponder. So if you're able, would you stand with me this morning? And this is what we do if you're new to King Street. Every time we gather, and we're being very deliberate about it, Um, There are times we will sing a hymn from like decades ago, and the reason why is we think there's a small little group of hymns that probably every generation should know, so we'll sing them. And then I also think the older I get, it's important that we, because I grew up at a time when a worship leader would do like a responsive reading, 
And it was like as a kid, I kind of didn't get it, but as I'm getting older, I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. It's important for us to speak the Word of God and to do it as a collective community. So there's something powerful about hearing your neighbor recite Scripture with you. So um, I hope you'll do it loud enough so your neighbor will hear you. So here we are, verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So bad words of the Bible. Um, iniquity. Here's what it means, and we'll bring this for the next three weeks, just a reminder for all of us. But iniquity is a word that we don't use in our culture very often. So my best guess is that most of us would sort of be uh, not very clear about what that word means. So iniquity, the best we can get a rendering of it, is uh, behavior that is crooked. So if somebody has committed an iniquity, they have acted in some crooked way. And it has very much a horizontal um, implication to it, is that if I act in a way that is crooked to you, it's a way that is in some ways deceptive and not, not uh, upfront and clear. So behavior that is crooked, and that can be done toward God or toward each other, and we'll unpack that in just a few moments. Transgression is to break a trust. So I gave you my word, and then I broke it. Or I willfully deceived you in some way, I broke my trust with you. That is to commit a transgression. Sin, and in the Hebrew, it's uh, kata, and in Greek, it's hamartia. This is what sin means, to fail or to miss the goal. So if we sin, we acknowledge that we have failed or that we have missed the goal. We've missed the way. It's like driving down the 401 and you're supposed to get off at a certain exit and you miss it. You're supposed to be somewhere else. You should have gone right. Instead, you went straight. It's to miss the way or to miss the goal. So um, listen to this. I love it, especially when Dr. Tim Mackey draws all sorts of parallels here. Two passages of Scripture that use the very same Hebrew word that we would take for sin. This is how it is described. So there were some highly skilled military men from the tribe of Benjamin. They, just, they were described this way in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair, and then here comes the same word, and not miss. That's the same word for sin. They would sling with their left hand at a hair and not miss. That same word is used there. Kata in Hebrew. And then another one in Proverbs 19, verse 2, uses the very same word. Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? That's the same word in Hebrew for sin to miss the way. So to fail or to miss the way, that's our teaching theme for this morning. And in our culture, um, the word sin is very offensive to people. Uh, it's a loaded term. Obviously, it has religious origins and connotations to it, 
And so this is why every generation needs to rethink what the essential message of the word means because words tend to evolve. And when words are used thoughtlessly or trivially, they can wound others. I've often thought people who are trusted with the sacred trust of the gospel, the word of the Lord, it can be, and I hope never intentionally, but when it's used thoughtlessly and sometimes trivially, it can be weaponized to injure and hurt people. And so we want to use words with intentionality, with appropriate knowledge and insight, so that we don't do a disservice to what the word is intended to mean and that we don't also weaponize it and injure and hurt other people along the way. Okay, so sin explained. Sin explained. Um, Again, sin answers the question, what does it mean to miss the way or to fail? Right? There's this passage in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to a man or woman, just seems obvious, seems clear. We should go this way, only to find out that we, we missed the way. It wasn't the right way after all. And we'll talk a little bit more this morning before we're done that sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. Um, okay, so the Ten Commandments, ready to go? The Ten Commandments at Sinai were given by God to Moses to help form the people into the people of God. And so they were to be different than all the neighboring nations because of the way they would live their lives. And so we have the 10, not suggestions, 10 commandments. And to not keep the 10 commandments would be to fail, right? We fail to keep the commandments. In other words, we've sinned. And the commandments are broken up. There's like two sections. One is specifically directed toward how we ought to relate to God. And then there's other parts of the Ten Commandments that are directly related to how we are supposed to relate with our neighbors and how we are to treat one another. Sin, to fail to keep the commandments would be a sin, and to fail to love God and neighbor would be a sin. So to sin against our neighbor is to sin against God. Um, If you're new to the Bible, there's a story of um, a Joseph, not Joseph and Mary, but Joseph, who is uh, part of the patriarchs of of Israel, the 12 sons of of Jacob. And uh, so here's the story. It's a wild story, if you ever want to catch up to it. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, those of you who might be new to church, but you understand that story. Uh, It's a story of Joseph and how he was... um, there was a, he was betrayed by his brothers, and he was really left for dead, and, uh, but God had other plans, and he went from like the pit to the palace, but how he got there was a wild, wild story. He was promoted by a man named Potiphar, who was entrusted, he entrusted him with all of his household, and so this is where the story picks up in Genesis 39. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then, he says, could I do such a 
wicked thing. And it wasn't a good thing, by the way. It was a wicked thing. And sin against God. So sleeping with another man's wife was not just a sin against Potiphar. It would be a sin against God. And so sins that are horizontal have a vertical impact. And so when we sin against each other, we are interrupting our relationship with God. We are bringing injury to the heart of God. This is consistent with sin. So when we fail to relate well to neighbor, we fail to relate well with God. We cannot separate those two. We cannot separate those two. And so this is why we are presented in the world we're living in right now to go back to the series we just came from around one. How we relate to each other has great spiritual significance in our lives. That's why Jesus connected them, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself because he understood understood how the ways of God work. So here's something also that's very important. Sometimes we sin intentionally. Anybody here ever sinned intentionally? I probably should ask another way. Anybody here never sinned intentionally, right? Well, you just did because you lied is what it would be. So everybody sins intentionally. It's hard to admit, but we choose our course of action. Sometimes we sin intentionally and with knowledge And at other times, our intentional actions come without knowledge. But the light goes on later, and we go, oh, I sinned against God in that regard. And at the moment, I thought I was doing the right thing. I was actually doing the wrong thing. Saul and David, powerful story of a king who abused his power, and he's hunting David down, thinking he's doing a service to God and to the kingdom of Israel. He's hunting David down like a wild beast, And on two separate occasions, David had God put him into his hands where he could have killed him. And on two separate occasions, he chose not to. One of the occasions was when he crept up behind him and he cut the hem of his garment. And the text tells us that David was conscience-stricken by what he did. And another situation is when David snuck into the camp where Saul was fast asleep. The text actually says God caused Saul to fall into a deep sleep. And David and one of his fighting men took his spear and his water jug. Could have killed him. It was right by his head. Took it back to where they were, and then David addresses Saul and says, hey, whose are these? In other words, God had put you into my hands, and I chose not to take your life. David did the right thing. And Saul thought he was doing the right thing by hunting David down. And here's the text says here in 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, after David had said to him, hey, I've got these. Whose are these? Right? Saul realized that David did the right thing by him. He says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong." Sometimes we don't do it deliberately and intentionally, but we look back over our lives and we say, I was offside there. That was wrong. That was a sin. I didn't even realize I was doing it. Call it a sin of ignorance if we want. That doesn't make it okay. The Spirit will bring things to our attention. And then we have the opportunity to make things right. Sometimes we'll have the opportunity to make things right, as Saul did. 
So when Saul acknowledged, I have sinned, he's really coming to terms with the fact that he had failed and he had missed the way as it pertains to relating to David. Okay, so that's sin explained. Now let's go to sin in the Older Testament. And this is a very dangerous morning for, for everyone here today because the clock at the back is broken. And um, okay, thank you. Thank you, Gary. Um, but I'm only on point two. Um, sin in the Older Testament. Can we talk about that for just a few moments? Now, when we think of the word sin, um, we probably think that the very first time that shows up in Hebrew is in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 is when the first man, the first woman, ate from the forbidden tree. And they were invited by God to eat whatever they wanted from every other tree, but that one was offside. And as humans, what do we do when we are told something is offside? We become a little more interested in what we're told that we cannot have. And so the first man, the first woman eat from the forbidden tree, and sin enters our experience. Paul talks about that in, in Romans, that, you know, sin came into the experience through the first Adam, and life comes to our experience through the second Adam, which is Jesus. And so sin is part of our experience in the garden, but sin is not mentioned there explicitly. The first time the word sin shows up in Hebrew is in Genesis chapter 4. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Genesis chapter 4 is when... Um, Adam and Eve lay together, and they uh, conceived and gave birth to a son, Cain and Abel, and the rest is history, but let me read this to you. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, kind of like leftover giving. What do I have left here? I got to give some. It's like the offering is coming by. I got to give something. What do I have there? That's the, that's the picture. Leftover giving. Some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, but his was different. He brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. He gave first fruits of what God had given to him. It was the first that he had received from God he gave back to him. Not leftover giving. The Lord looked with favor on Abel, not because of the amount, right, but the heart by which it came from. It says here, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. He didn't get what he wanted. He wanted favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do, now here comes the picture for us. Here comes the picture. Sin is described with beastly characteristics, like a wild creature that desires to dominate and destroy. Here comes. Here's the picture. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. A picture to Genesis in the created order where we're having given dominion and we're supposed to partner with God and care for the garden. We're supposed to rule over it. Not let sin have dominion over us, but to have dominion over it. And now Cain said to his brother Abel, isn't this interesting? He doesn't bring the kind of offering that pleases the Lord. God brings him a warning. What do humans do sometimes when they get a yellow light from God? We crash through it. We can manage this on our own. We can get through this. I know how this will work out. I've got the capacity to manage this situation. In fact, back to Genesis 3, I know better than God. I know better than God. And the serpent will whisper, that tree, God's holding out on you because he doesn't want you to be like him. And so we say, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but. I know God said this, but. 
And remember, sin never shows up, right, with beastly characteristics, as we see here in Genesis 4, crouching at the door, remaining rather hidden, kind of just sort of trying to get access. And if we give the key to our hearts to sin and we allow it to open the door, we will find that it will come in and we make friends with us and we will make friends with it for a season until sin grows and grows and grows and dominates and dominates and all of a sudden it suffocates the soul. And we begin to move in all sorts of directions we never thought we would move in because sin is incredibly deceptive. It's creepy. It stalks us. It hides at the door, knocks persistently, asking us to open up the door. And so now Cain said to his brother Abel, what's he do? He's opened the door. Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first homicide in Scripture. Then the Lord said to Cain, and where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And this is getting at the heart of sin right here. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother? Why do I care? I'm, I'm not responsible for him. And God says, yes, you are. You are responsible for your brother. And when we say that we're not, sin is crouching at the door, and we've probably opened the door, and it's accessed our heart, and now we're moving in all sorts of wrong directions, and we're going to miss the way. What a powerful, powerful story that is for us. It's so elementary, and yet sin shows up in so many creative ways in our lives that we often don't recognize it, and the destructive potential it holds, wanting to administer it to our own hearts and lives. This is the nature of sin. Sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. It never shows up looking creepy. It always shows up looking appealing. Always. This is old time preaching today. Sin. Sin will destroy your life. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy churches, destroy leadership. Sin, when it's invited in, you set a table for it at the table of your own heart, you run the risk of derailing your life. And like I said, I think I just need to camp there for just a minute. It shows up looking pretty. Looking really pretty, actually. The scent is pleasant. Looks pretty appealing. But once you take the bite, it has its own bite. And it'll kill you. It has the power to literally kill us. Sin is at work in our lives right now. There's a cosmic nature to sin. It's affected us at a cellular level. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes for us first. It's just a matter of when. Every time you stand at a graveside and you say goodbye to someone you love, we all should say, I hate sin. Because this is what sin does. It kills people. The soul that sins shall surely die. That's the warning. So sin is described as a deceptive and crouching door knocker looking to get access to us. Desires to have us, to literally control us. It desires to have us and we must become the master over the doorway of our own hearts. And here's how Tim Mackey describes it. Sin is understood in Scripture as desires and urges that consume us and drive us to act for our own benefit 
at the expense of others, and it leads to a chain reaction of relational breakdown. That's what sin does. Can I read that one more time to you? Sin is understood in Scripture as desires and urges that consume us and drive us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others, and it leads to a chain reaction of relational breakdown. Yeah, sin is incredibly potent. The pleasures of sin for a season, they do last, but then they expire, and they deliver, as the writer says, the book of James, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. That's how James describes it. Well, our time is almost gone today, and I want to wrap up with sin in the New Testament. Sin is not just an Old Testament idea. There's a New Testament idea to this. And um, so let's, let's unpack this. Four quick thoughts. Sin has infected everyone. You and I have a terminal disease, a lower nature that the Bible calls as a sinful nature. Why are we attracted to the wrong things? you ever found that odd about humans? Good habits are so easy to break. Bad habits, hard to break. There's almost like a gravitational pull in the soul of the human person that takes us away from what we were designed and made for. Sin has infected everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the way. We all fail. And so if you're here this morning and you feel offended by that idea, really what it means is that you and I are not perfect people. We don't get it right all the time. In fact, it also means that there's something that's wrong with us that takes us through an inclination of heart the wrong way. Doesn't mean we're not valuable. Doesn't mean we're not loved. It doesn't mean God hasn't spoken goodness over us in creation. He sure has but we've been infected with something. And this is why, until we understand this, we won't have an appreciation, the depth of appreciation for what Jesus did for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So when we see the crushed, crucified Jesus, we see the result of sin. It always crushes. Secondly, in the New Testament, sin includes what we do and what we have left undone. That's a tough word right there. What we do and what we have left undone. The writer, James 4, 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Whew, that's big. Wow. I don't mean to do that, but that'll guilt you up this morning, won't it? Wow. To know the good and not do it is sin. How many times are you and I sinning throughout the day? A lot. If you're like me, a lot. To know the good and not do it is sin. So our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, what do they call it? Sins of commission, what we do, and sins of omission, what we leave undone. It's language that our Catholic friends use. Protestants say it different. Right? But it's the same thing. This is why I appeal can we just sort of break down that unhealthy ecclesiastical divide and say, oh, no one's perfect. Last time I checked, Protestants aren't perfect. Catholics aren't perfect. Wow, we actually maybe need each other. In the world we're living in, do you think it would be a better, stronger church if Catholics and Protestants came together? Oh, yeah. I told you this before. I don't know why. I don't know what it looks like for me, but I really feel strongly compelled by God to be an advocate for that message. One church. 
one God. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Our Catholic friends, they sin. Our Protestant friends, we sin too. We all do, and we all need a Savior, and there's only one, and He's saving all of us. Isn't that great news? Yeah. Uh, two more. Sin has a compulsive nature to it. Um, Romans chapter 7. I, I'm sure you can identify to this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. There's a compulsive nature to this. Yeah, it's like we're driven sometimes by a force beyond us. The things I hate, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do them. There's this law at work. God, I'm a slave. And then the very first word, thanks be to God. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? Jesus the Christ. Awesome. And then the next verse in Romans chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? So what does that mean? From beginning to end, your life and my life is covered by Jesus' atoning self-sacrifice. I'm holding out this reality for us that each of us in this place, as long as we're still breathing, we have a sinful nature, but that's not what defines us. If you've put your saving faith in Jesus today, you are a sinner and you are a saint. You are both and simultaneously. Those who have not put their saving faith in Jesus, you have not been regenerated yet. You are not a saint. You are a sinner. That's what the Bible calls us. But thanks be to God, we've been made alive in Jesus and we've been given a status as son and daughter. We are saints doesn't mean we get it right all the time. That's not what a saint does. A saint has just been forgiven. I remember at funerals, sometimes I'll feel prompted to say this. I'm confident that my brother or my sister is in the arms of the one true God today, not because they were a good person, but because they were forgiven. That's the truth about who we are. I want to be a good person, but I can never be good enough on my own. But I can be forgiven, and that's good news. All right, here's the last one. Sin is... Sin is forgiven by confession and accepting what Jesus has done for us. You and I don't earn our way. In the words of John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. What will he do? He will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. The gospel is tremendous good news. It's amazing. Um, We are taught in Scripture that we are sinners not in order to shame us, but we are invited to recognize our lower nature so that we can choose, with God's help, a better way. And Jesus is that better way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we miss the way, we miss Jesus. But if we find Jesus, we find the way. And uh, what I love about Luke chapter 15, these three stories, right? We're talking about missing the way or perhaps getting lost, and that's how Jesus describes it. Luke chapter 15, there is a lost coin, right? There is a lost sheep, and there is a lost son. And Jesus tells this story to a bunch of religious people, these stories to a bunch of religious people who were missing the forest for the trees. And what he's saying there is, and this is the antithesis of sin, because coins should be in pockets, not under beds, hidden away and lost. Sheep should not be wandering away, off, away from the fold and the shepherd. They should be back at home with the shepherd and the fellow sheep. 
and the son should not be away in the far country selling himself in order to feed his stomach, but he should be safely at home, securely provided for with the father and his family. And so when we're lost, what's happened? We've missed the way. We've lost our way, actually. That's what sin is. When, when sin is dominating us, we've lost our way. But here's the good news. We can always come back. We can always turn for home. We can always say, God, I've lost my way. I've missed the way. I've failed. Would you forgive me, pardon me? And what does he do when we ask for that? What's the father do? He comes running to the son in an undignified manner and throws his arms around him and kisses him and puts a robe on him and gives him a, a debit card, a signet ring, right? He throws a big party feast. He doesn't say, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? You need to go have a time out for 30 days and go live with the pigs in the back. He says, my boy's home. My boy's home. Have you come home? Are you home now? David writes and says, if I would have cherished sin in my heart, you wouldn't have heard my prayers. Is there some cherished sin in your life that you need to surrender? My best guess is yes, because there's still magnet to steel going on inside of you, just like it is with me. And we need to say, God, would you help me not to be so drawn to the steel of sin, but to be drawn to you, and I know there'll be moments when this is still attractive because it's part of who I am still until I'm fully redeemed and reclaimed by you. But would you help me to lose my magnetism to sin and evil and to be drawn to you, the one true God? Amen to that? Amen. Lord, thank you today that your mercy is new every morning. Thank you for your peace and grace over our lives. Thank you that you call us to life with God. And what separates us from you? is sin. And Lord, we pray that you would help us without judgment and without unnecessary, unhealthy guilt, Lord, to just receive your mercy and grace, not to sin so that grace may abound, but to make space for your grace to superabound in us so that sin doesn't get the upper hand. Lord, would you help us to rule over those desires and impulses and drives so that we might not be led astray and miss the way and may it always be for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. At the end of every gathering, and I don't know how long we'll have to do this, but I'd like to pray for the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and pray for the civilians on both sides of the battle. Um, I am convinced as your pastor, by the way, that Genesis chapter 12 is a beautiful, important promise that we need to understand. That doesn't give Israel a blank check, by the way but it does give them the nod from the people of God. And I mentioned to you last week, we want to be people of compassion. We want to be people who understand that every human life matters. Every life on both sides of this conflict matter. And at the same time, we need to understand sometimes the brutal tactics of those who have initiated the atrocities of October 7th. And um, we need to stand with Israel I'm putting myself out there today again, but I, I feel we need to do it. There was just another shooting in Montreal this morning at a, at a Jewish school. Anti-Semitism is incredibly unacceptable, grieves the heart of God, 
And as your pastor, I don't want to hear a whisper of anti-Semitism in our church family. I don't want to hear a whisper of it. Um, as your pastor, I will lovingly and graciously come to you. Um, and I'm encouraging you as well to stand up to the hate that is being projected against the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's unacceptable. It's culturally loaded. And as your pastor, if the Holocaust wasn't bad enough, these people have been hated. I have, I have a, can I share a premise with you? In 1 John, John writes about Antichrist. He talks about how there's a spirit of Antichrist in the world. And that spirit of Antichrist has been in the world a long time. But it seems to come over and over again, hatred towards the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. Does it not seem to make sense from a spiritually charged point of view that there could be a spirit of Antichrist that hates Jesus and all that he's about in the world, including his Jewishness? Why else would the Jews be in the crosshairs of such hate? They're not perfect people. They're not perfect people. And like I said earlier, there are no blank checks. And we do not wring our hands in glee at any Palestinian who loses their life. But when people are building tunnels underneath hospitals and schools because they want to attack and eliminate a group of people who do not have the right to exist, and when Palestinian authorities have not condemned October 7th yet, that is problematic. And I hope you don't think I'm being political. I believe I'm being moral and spiritual today. Amen. So we are advocating for peace. We'll pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We'll pray for the peace and the end of this conflict. And we'll pray that people will change their hearts and not be hell-bent on trying to drive a people group into the ocean where they fail to exist anymore. I just can't stand by and tolerate that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose friends on social media. You know what? That's okay. So be it. I, I didn't sign up to be a spiritual leader to be popular. Uh, I signed up to do the right thing. And even some of you in this room today, you might disagree with me. I'm okay with that. I'm super okay with that. Um, I'm only advocating, so you hear me loud and clear. I'm advocating for human life. I'm advocating for the eradication of hatred, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm arguing for anti-Semitism that it needs to stop and stop yesterday, okay? That's what I'm saying today. And I don't throw rocks at other places, but I've been a little disappointed with the absence of other Christian leaders who are silent um, and I would like to see my brothers and sisters, and when I get a chance, and I already spoke to the lead pastors in Oshawa recently about um, using our voice and our influence for, uh, for what's best and right. So, if I've hurt your feelings, I didn't mean to, but you can come and talk to me anytime. Call me. We'll even have coffee if you want. Is your pastor a gutsy guy or just foolish? I don't know. I hope I'm gutsy. All right. If you're able, would you stand with me this morning? Lord, the last thing I want to do is be a polarizing pastor, and the last thing I want to be is somebody who has no backbone either. And so, Lord, I just bring my words to you, and I, I entrust them to you, that they'll be heard the way they were intended to be heard. I pray, God, we pray together for the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you would protect them and preserve their lives wherever they find themselves in the world. There is much hatred against them, and we pray, God, that you would push back evil, defend them, 
And Lord, as we've already said, there is no blank check for them. You will deal with the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the way you feel to deal with them. And we support your goodwill. Lord, we don't ask you to be on our side. We choose to be on yours. And uh, so, Lord, may your hand of protection and your hand of generous shalom that brings peace, may it come all over that region. Lord, we pray for people whose hearts, who are in leadership, whose hearts are maybe inclined towards deep levels of hate. We pray, God, that their hearts would change. We pray, God, that there would be a swift end to the conflict in Gaza. We pray, Lord, that there would be no more civilian deaths on both sides. We pray, Lord, for Lebanon and Syria and Egypt, and we pray for Iran, and we pray, Lord, for Saudi Arabia and all the Middle Eastern country, for Jordan, and, and we just pray, Lord, that there would be a wonderful spiritual awakening that would happen in the Middle East. Amen. Lord, it's not us against them. Every person is an image bearer of the one true God. And we choose, Lord, today to stand with you in what you're doing in the world. And we also choose to stand with Israel to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so, sovereign God, would you please come and do what you need to do. And if there's lessons learned, if there's hearts of repentance that are required, may that be so. And Lord, we pray that there would be wisdom and discernment in the West, that we would not move away, God, and begin to adopt something that had happened decades ago, Lord, where we begin to become anti-Semitic, Lord, that is just something that bruises and wounds your heart. And so we ask you, Lord, to forgive us if we've ever had that in our own hearts. May your mercy come to us, Lord, and cleanse us at this time. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.